everyone. Nice to see you. Y'all doing all right? Welcome to Canopy. My name's Josh. If you don't know me, one of the pastors here, hey, hey. Um, it's good to see you all. If you are newish here, we need to get to know you. One of the things we believe really strongly here is that church is family. I know that gets said a lot in church, um, and uh, we really want it to be true. <laughs> we really want it to be true that we're uh, not just showing up and seeing each other every once in a while, but really living together, living life together, living on mission together, worshiping Jesus together in communities. So if you're new, newish, you feel new, get to know someone. Start with me, start with Mike, start with whoever you're sitting next to. But uh, it'd be great to grab coffee. It'd be great to get to know you more. So, yeah, on that note, we're going to dive right into an interesting text. Uh, it's in Acts chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 9. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. It'll be up on the screens. Before we dive in, I would love to pray for our time. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful to be gathered here in your name to hear from you. And that's what we want. This is not an exercise in history or religion. Um, it's not even just a, a teaching moment. God, we want to encounter you through your word. We want to know you more. We want to know ourselves more. We want to be transformed in the process. So speak to us, Lord. Your kids are listening. Amen. All right. Now, for some time, uh, wait, actually, I should give some context. You don't remember the last couple weeks, uh, there's this guy named Philip we met, not Stephen, Philip. If you don't know that joke, if you don't know why people are laughing, just go watch a couple weeks ago, you'll see. I had, I had some issues. Um, but Philip, this guy who uh, started out in Jerusalem, and when persecution of the church started happening, the church had to spread out from Jerusalem, kind of all around the known region, and Philip, one of the deacons of the church, ended up preaching the gospel in Samaria, and this is the story of one of his encounters said, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed. And was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there because they, uh, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, so that none of this can happen. None of the things you've said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the message, uh, the word of the Lord, they testified about Jesus. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. All right, interesting text, interesting story. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, when, whenever you preach a sermon series, uh, something... 
that you'll discover along the way is you come into it with a plan, and then as you're going along, the plan sort of gets interrupted, and suddenly you start finding themes that you hadn't realized were there before. And one of the interesting themes that I've noticed myself doing over the past several weeks, or as Mike said, 27 weeks, whatever it is, is uh, apologizing or, or trying to give a little bit more clarification on the bad guys in the story. You guys have noticed me doing that with the, the Pharisees and Sadducees a little bit, and now I feel the same kind of obligation to do something with this character, Simon, because I, I, I love literature. Like, I don't know if you know this about me, but I was an English major in college, and that, I love story. I love the way it works, and, and I'm fascinated by characters who are three-dimensional. I think far too often in our thinking, we think of characters in ways that are two-dimensional, flat, you know, sort of old Bible flannel graphs. I've talked about this before, where they have one expression, and that's who they are. They're all angry, or they're all mean, or they're all sorcerers, <laughs> or something else, and we don't realize that these are people that are complex in all sorts of ways, in backstory, and in emotion, and in response to situation, and very rarely, sometimes, but very rarely is it just a matter of good guys and bad guys, right? And so I look at this character, Simon, and I think, you know, in my Bible, maybe, maybe in yours too, it says Simon the Sorcerer. And I think that's how he's become known throughout history. And I wonder if there's not more to the story here, right? I mean, Simon is a guy who obviously had a, a, a reputation. I mean, people in his town called him the great power of God. He had, he had this sort of business, this, this reputation he had manufactured for himself. Yet, when Philip shows up and preaches the gospel, what does he do? He gets baptized. He says on the spot, and we know what the early church taught about baptism. You can read it in the rest of the New Testament. They taught what we teach here, that baptism is identification with the death of Jesus. That when we go into the waters, we die, with our, die to ourselves with Jesus. And then when we come out, we rise to a whole new kind of life. Fundamentally transformed. Different from the roots up, from the inside out. And that's what Simon stepped into. I mean, here's a man who recognized in Philip's preaching, who had an encounter, must have had an encounter with Jesus, and recognized in him something of surpassing worth. Something worth laying himself down for. And as I read this, especially these little, these little titles in the Bible. Does anybody have those titles in your Bibles? I was a little disturbed by the heading. Now, the heading is not scripture, just so you know. That's something that an editor has added in after the fact. But I was disturbed because I thought, we've labeled this guy Simon the Sorcerer. And there's all sorts of stories that have sprung out around him throughout history. And I, I, I don't know. <laughs> this is not something you want to hear your pastor say. I don't know that my speculations today are correct because we don't know how the story of Simon ended. But I do know that he was a person. I do know that he was baptized in the name of Jesus. And I do know that he shows some remarkable humility by the end of this story. So with the stuff that I do know, while I don't know the outcomes of his life, I think I'd like to change the label in my Bible from Simon the Sorcerer to Simon the Christian. Isn't that what he is? I mean... Now, now, the problem is when we, when we call him Simon the Sorcerer, we fall into two mistakes. The first one is we label him something that it seems like if he had passed through the waters of baptism with any genuine faith, it seems like Jesus no longer labeled him. Does that make sense? This happens to us a lot, doesn't it? Where somebody comes to Jesus with an old name and then receives a new one, and yet we keep calling him the old name. 
We continue to hold at arm's distance people whom Jesus has embraced. Call them by an old name. And, and, and I just look at this and I wonder, again, I'm speculating a bit, but I wonder if Simon the Sorcerer is his old name. And we're still printing that name in our Bibles. When in fact, he was Simon the Christian who had come to Jesus and been transformed by him in ways that he was still catching up to, as we'll see in just a second. Friends, let's not label anyone by their old names. If they have bowed a knee to Jesus as Lord, they have passed through the waters of baptism into new life, then Jesus calls them daughter, son. And in this place, we call you sister and brother. No matter where you've come from, no matter what your old name was, you have a new one. And that's the one we celebrate and acknowledge here. That's what we want to be true of us. And, by the way, that goes for you too. You don't get to call yourself your old name either. Look, if Jesus has called you daughter, if Jesus has called you son, then that's who you are. That's who you are. Don't agree with any other voices, whether voices from the past Fears about the future, voices from the spirit world. I know that sounds weird and creepy, but speaking into your head, don't agree with them if Jesus is saying something else. Have a new name and a new identity. And I just, I, again, I don't know how his story ends, but I just can't escape the feeling that Simon had exactly that. The other problem with labeling him Simon the Sorcerer is, of course, we get to opt out of his story because none of us can relate to Simon the Sorcerer. Anybody else? Struggled with sorcery recently? I mean, if you want to raise your hand for that one, I'm not entirely sure what we're going to do. But that's just not a relatable character, right? That's, that doesn't seem to be a story to which we can pay much attention. But Simon the Christian, who's still trying to figure stuff out, anybody else relate to that? Simon the Christian, who's been given a new name by Jesus, but is still trying to catch up to that new name in his actual life, Simon the Christian who comes into his new life with Jesus with a whole bunch of baggage from the old life that still has to be sorted out. Anybody relate to that guy? Yeah, that's it. That's it. When Jesus gives us this new name, we're free. We are new. We're transformed. But there still is a gap between who we are and who we are. Does that make any sense? Who you are in the eyes of Jesus and who you are in your own eyes. There's a space and there's always going to be. But here at Canopy, we believe you can live into that space. You can see progress from the person you were or are to the person Jesus knows you to be. You can move closer to that vision day by day, year by year. Around here, we call that learning to live free. Learning to live free. It's learning to be who you already are. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. That's what I think, I think, Simon is doing here. He's on a process of learning. So what's the story here? What happened? Well, Philip, an amazing man of God. We're going to hear more about him next week. I can't wait. It's a great story. Um, going to be taught by a great person, a great friend in this community. Um, we, uh, we're going to see more about him. But Philip 
is this awesome character. He's a deacon in the church in, in Jerusalem. Like I said, when, he, uh, when the church undergoes persecution, he ends up scattering across the region and ends up in Samaria. Uh, and in Samaria, he preaches the gospel, which is great, right? Because that's what Jesus told him to do in Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Philip, as a result of the persecution in the church in Jerusalem, now I'm not saying God caused it, but I'm saying he used it to get the church moving into phase two of the mission, Samaria, a place nobody wanted to go, a place no good, respecting Jew would go. If you're part of our improv lessons, you'll understand why they don't go to Samaria. But Simon, uh, <laughs> Philip, I'm doing it again. Different guy this time. Philip ends up in Samaria. At least Simon's in the story this week, right? At least... I'm mixing up people from the same story. He ends up in Samaria where he preaches the gospel. And I didn't read the part because we read it last week, but all sorts of crazy stuff happens. He announces Jesus as Messiah, and guess what? Jesus shows up. He starts healing people. He starts delivering people. World changes as a result of preaching the gospel with power. This is the way it's supposed to be. We've talked about this before. I believe that today we need to preach the gospel not just with words, but with power. That a post-Christian culture needs to see signs and wonders to know that the things we're saying are true. This is not the only way it's going to work. They also need to see our love, our unity. They need to see a lot of stuff that I'm afraid hasn't been seen in a long time. But the gospel with power. And so lives start being changed. People are being transformed. And suddenly, Samaritans of all people are being baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, what I love what happens next. Because the apostles back in Jerusalem hear what's happening in Samaria. And they say, oh, we better get over there and see what's going on and sort of bless and empower what's going on. I love this, this order of operations. You notice how this works? The church, that is the people in the church, get active in the world and the leadership has to catch up to what's already happening. You love that? How do we often think about it in the church? The leaders get active and come up with a plan and then call for a bunch of volunteers to show up and empower the vision. It's just the opposite here. Here, the church, the people in the church have a vision of Jesus and his mission in the world that compels them into the world, and the leaders are having to catch up to bless and empower what God is already doing. This, my friends, is the sign of a healthy church. It's when the vision is here, not up here. Man, I love that. I love to see when relationship is happening just because it's happening. I love to see when people are starting to be activated for mission, like these ideas, these visions are sparking in their mind. I love to see people finding spaces on their own to worship, and I as a pastor am having to catch up to what God's doing in our church. This is healthy. This is good. And we see it happening here, and it's beautiful. The, The apostles show up. In Samaria, to something that God is already doing, and they just get to bless and empower. And it's really interesting what happens next. They show up and they say, you've been baptized in the name of Jesus, but you haven't received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where things get weird, okay? Work with me. This is where things tend to get controversial. I don't think they have to be. But there are all sorts of arguments in the church about this very passage. Because... There's a school within the church that believes that you receive the Holy Spirit fully in the moment of confession to Jesus. That when you confess faith to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit fully in you, 
And then there's a whole different stream of church that believes that there is some sort of a secondary experience that's necessary beyond confessing to Jesus to receive the Holy Spirit. And that second stream of church will tend to point to this passage and say, see, they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. They'd confessed the name of Jesus, but hadn't received the Holy Spirit. So they need to upgrade their membership. (laughs) I've literally heard it talked about in these terms. When you come through the door, you get the basic membership. But then sometime later, when you pray really hard, you get the diamond club. Now, I'm going to try to walk a line here of saying they're both right. Now, here's what I mean by that. Um, I had a professor in college. I loved this. Whenever somebody would come and say, I read this in the Bible, and it seems disturbing, you know, whatever it may be, something like this. I, I read, read this in the Bible, and I'm, I'm building sort of my, my understanding of the Holy Spirit based on this passage. So they got baptized in the name of Jesus, but hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Ergo, therefore, there must be a secondary experience. There we go. That's my theology of the Spirit. My professor would say, this is his line, the Bible is a long, complicated book. Read the whole thing. That's what he'd say. Read the whole thing and interpret this in light of the whole thing. Because there are lots and lots of passages in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. And they all work in harmony when you read them together. But when you pull any one of them out, you can make it say just about anything. What does the Bible say about the work of the Holy Spirit? The Bible says that no one can confess Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit of God that we bow our knee to Jesus and pass through the water of baptism. And he meets with us in that moment. We see in the Bible, in the Gospels, that the disciples, the apostles, received the Holy Spirit in the book of John before Jesus ascended to heaven. And then again on the day of Pentecost. We see all sorts of interesting things happen throughout the Scripture. We, in fact, see that every person on the planet... Every animal on the planet, every rock on the planet experiences the Holy Spirit daily. Do you know that? In the book of Job, it says if he were to withdraw his spirit, everything would return to dust. So literally, the Holy Spirit is holding everything together right now. You and you and you and the chair you're sitting on and the people walking outside right now. Everyone is experiencing the Holy Spirit. So let's be very careful. I get very nervous when someone on the basis of this passage says, you haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. However, I think there's something clearly being said here, which is it's possible to receive forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus and then to think that you've arrived when in fact you've only just begun a journey. See, somewhere along the lines, we begin to think of forgiveness of our sins and confession of Jesus as Lord as the destination when, in fact, it's just the starting line, isn't it? We talk in the church a lot about being saved. I am saved, past tense. When the Bible talks about salvation in the most relational of terms... It's not, have you crossed this line? Have you prayed this prayer? Have you done this thing? It's, are you with him? Do you know him? It's active. It moves. Salvation moves with Jesus as he goes. 
Listen to how the Bible talks about it. Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have run the race set out before me. The writer of Hebrews says, run with perseverance the race set before you, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher, champion of your faith. And Jesus, of course, what does he say? Come, follow me. Not believe in me. Although that's part of it. Follow me. Walk with me. Salvation is active. And it moves. So what's happening here in this passage when it says they had received the forgiveness of sins, but not yet the Holy Spirit? What's happening is they had started. They had walked through the gates. They had put their foot on the road. But God was calling them up into the highlands. They had started a new life, but now they needed the power to actually live it. See, so many of us think that Jesus saves us, and that means that we kind of step from one line into another, and someday, someday, we'll fully realize what we've stepped into when we cross into the gates of heaven. But from now until then, it's just like, I'm here, and heaven's there, and we'll just sort of get by. When in fact, what we see is, no, you stepped into new life, and now you need the power to live it. Day in and day out, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He provides you the power to live this forgiven life, this new life in Jesus, right here and now. You can grow in it. You can see the gap between who you are and who you are close. So many Christians walk through the gates into new life and just sort of hang out in the courtyard when Jesus is saying, in the famous words of C.S. Lewis, further up and further in. Further up and further in. Come, I've got so much to show you. I just feel that word so strong on my heart right now for somebody, at least somebody in this room. I've got so much more to show you. Yeah, I know you've seen some good stuff, but you haven't seen anything yet. Receive the Holy Spirit again and again. I've said this before, but a friend of mine famously says, when people ask him, do you believe in a second filling of the Holy Spirit? He says, oh, yes. It comes right after the first and right before the third. And that's it, isn't it? The point of this, I think, if I had to boil it down to something really simple, is there's always more. We're talking about relationship with the most fascinating powerful, beautiful being who has ever existed, do you think he has more to show you than you have yet experienced? If so, follow him further up and further in. And that, I think, is what's happening with Simon here. We got a guy who started the journey with Jesus, I think, and then stumbled right out of the gates. Because his old life was right there, wasn't it? He had gotten used to being someone special. People called him the great power of God. And suddenly he realizes that he's nothing, that the power he had is just a sham. It's just an illusion. And you've got this guy, Philip, who's a relative nobody, showing up and saying, bam, you're healed. Bam, you're set free. Lives are changing in a moment. Then he sees Peter and John show up, and they lay hands on people, and they're transformed in a moment. And he says, I want that. I don't think he's wrong to say, I want that. Anybody else? 
I want that. But he doesn't know how to get there, so he just defaults to what he knows. I've got a, I've got a checkbook. I've got a bank account. Can I buy that? You know, there's this, this practice, you know, throughout the, the, the medieval church called simony. Have you heard of this? It's named after this guy. It means buying spiritual gifts, spiritual goods, or spiritual positions. And it's based on this idea that he's done something wicked and evil here, that he's using his influence and his, his money to try to buy his, his way. And, then, and certainly from Peter's response, you get the impression that maybe that's, I don't know. I'm going to talk about Peter here in a second, too. I've got an issue with Peter. <laughs> but it, it just seemed, have you ever been around a new Christian that just doesn't know what to say or what to do? That's the impression I get here. That there's a real enthusiasm and a zeal, and, and who knows why? Maybe it's, it's out of false motives. Maybe it's ego. I actually think that's what's happening here. That's what Peter calls out, right? He says, your heart is full of bitterness, and you're captive to sin. What's that all about? I think it's just insecurity. I think he used to be somebody, and now he realized that this following this way of Jesus thing, this dying to self thing, actually means dying to self. And I, I'm not the somebody I thought I was. And then he sees the, the, the apostles, they show up and they have this power. And he begins to want what they had. He starts to compare himself to them. What did Simon do wrong? I think the same thing we all do wrong all the time. Don't you? He was insecure. Insecurity is the baseline for all of us. It's not that some of us are insecure and others of us are great. It's that we're all insecure. We just have different ways of showing it. For some of us, our insecurity results in, like, in, 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 in aggression and, and trying to demonstrate how secure we are. And for, other, for others, it results in self-deprecation. For, for others, it results in people-pleasing and, and comparison. That seems to be Simon's issue. He sees these people and he says, I want to be like that. Anybody else ever felt that way when you've seen somebody talented or gifted or amazing? I want to be like that. The problem with that, of course, is when you say, I want to be like that, the Holy Spirit says, but I want you to be like you. I've given you what you need for today. And if you keep on wanting to be like them, you're going to miss the opportunity to be you today. And I need you to be you today. Because there's someone that only you can touch. There's someone that only you can reach. There's a purpose that only you can fulfill. Friends, I know that insecurity is our baseline. And we all have to kind of reconcile ourselves to the fact that that's true. But we don't have to live in it forever. Insecurity is where we come in. It's not who Jesus says we are. Do you know that you can grow in security? <laughs> And you can find yourself coming back here a month, a year from today, and say, I'm less insecure than I used to be. I don't think it'll ever go away. But that's a journey worth taking together, isn't it? Because comparison, let's just say this straight, comparison is the death of the spirit life in you. If you continue to compare yourself to others, you will miss what he's doing in you today. That's what Simon did, and, and, and Peter calls him out. He says, you're full of bitterness, captive to sin. You'll have no part. If you, listen, you'll have no part in this ministry if you keep going this way. Now, what Peter doesn't say, which I wish he would have said, you know, Peter's not much of a pastor. Did you guys notice that? Great apostle, 
great evangelist, not much of a pastor. Because what a pastor would say is, you've got this all wrong, but if you get this right, you know, you'll have no part in the ministry like this. But if you can settle into who you are and what he's doing in your life, you'll be a vibrant part of the body of Christ. That's what Peter should have said. We'll talk about it someday. You'll have a vibrant part of the body of Christ. Be who he made you to be. Now, does anybody else relate to this character more than you relate to Simon the sorcerer? guy who's got enthusiasm, a genuine hunger. For whatever reason, we're not sure if it's because of ego, because of insecurity, or because he sees something of surpassing worth, but he's got this hunger. He wants more of the Spirit of God. He, does, he goes about it in all the wrong ways, but he wants more. But he stumbles out of the block over his own sin. He can't get out of his own way. His pride, his ego, his insecurity, his comparison, his, his people-pleasing. He's got this, what I like to call Saul syndrome. You guys remember Saul in the Old Testament? Didn't do what God told him to do because he wanted the people to like him. That's what Simon's doing here. I just want people to keep liking me. To keep saying nice things about me. I want to keep being influential and important. I can relate to that. And maybe, to be fair, maybe the reason I'm going after this so hard is because this, like, I can relate to that. Like, this is kind of a welcome to my soul. This is a little bit of group therapy here for me. I appreciate you showing up for it. Man, people-pleasing. Yeah, oh, for sure. I got that. Wanting people to, to, to think I'm something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I get that. There's nothing on earth that fills that hole but the Holy Spirit. people-pleasing, comparison. It'll kill what God's trying to do in your life. And Peter says, repent, or you have no part in this. Repent and ask for forgiveness. And here's the thing. Simon does. Talk about a lot what he does wrong, but what does he do? Pray for me that none of this will happen. He doesn't say, you're a jerk. He doesn't say, who are you to tell me what to do? He doesn't turn around and walk away. He says, pray for me. Talk a lot about what Simon does wrong, but what does he do right? He makes himself known in community. He's exposed in community where his stuff can be called out. And then when it's called out, instead of getting defensive, he asks for prayer. I don't know. We don't know what happens to this guy, but man, I think we might have gotten him wrong. And I'm not saying I'm the only one who's gotten him right. I'm sure other people have thought this, but I just saw myself in this character. I think the moral of the story here is Christians are people that have stories and have pasts that continue to weigh us down. And we all have blind spots. And the best thing we can do for those blind spots is be hungry for more of the Spirit, be an intimate community where we're called out, and then repent when someone who we trust, who is also filled with the Spirit, puts their finger on something in our life. Guys, I think, I think humility in the church, I, I talked about signs and wonders, I talked about the power of God, but I think if the church were humble, that would change the world too. If we wrapped our head, I've said this before, but if we wrapped our head around the phrase, I could be wrong, help me see what I don't see. 
we talked less and listened more, says the guy with the microphone. I don't know. I see something in this guy. You don't have to agree with me, but I think there's something here that the Holy Spirit wants to tell us as a community today too, which is this. Be hungry for more of me. There's always more I've got to show you. Be known in community. Like really known. Not just passing friendships, not just people who could tell you your favorite color or your favorite animal, your favorite coffee drink, but people who really know you. And then give them the right to call you on stuff that Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. And when they do, humbly receive. That's a compelling church. It's a game-changing church, a world-changing church. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We magnify your name. We want to see you huge in this place, huge in this city and in the world. And this funny little text, I, I... I just can't escape the possibility that it's got the key to how we do that. Hunger, community, humility. God help us. None of those things come natural to us in a fallen world, in a broken world. We're going to need your help to be this kind of a people.